The future of health coaching. Opportunity, action, impact. Brought to you by Teleosis Institute, coaching and narrative healing. Welcome to the Future of Health Coaching Summit. I'm Reggie Mara, Creative Director at Teleosis Institute. And on behalf of our Executive Director, Dr. Joel Kreisberg, and myself, thank you for joining us for this conversation entitled, No Bridge Too Far, What Patients Wish Their Caregivers Knew. I'm happy to introduce today's guest, Joanna Burgess, whom I've known for over a decade and who is both a trusted colleague and, more importantly, a good friend. Joanna brings her extensive personal experience as a patient and her just as extensive professional experience as a nurse and patient advocate to this conversation. National recipient of the 2011 Great Comebacks Award, Joanna's diverse career includes pediatrics at Duke University Medical Center, a private holistic practice in massage and healing touch therapy, establishing a clinic for treatment of lymphedema in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and her current position with geriatrics at WakeMed in Cary, North Carolina as a wound and ostomy nurse. In her own words, Joanna sees herself as a bridge linking the world of science and medicine with the world of being a patient. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you, Reggie. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to be in conversation with you. It's not as though we're strangers, but this is the first time we've, we've formally decided to, to chat about this particular topic. So I'm actually, I, I don't want to waste too much of my breath here, and I'd like to just get into uh, conversation. Awesome. So what I'd love for you to do, and there's, there's such a richness of, of experience that you bring, what I'd love um, for you to do is, if, if you wouldn't mind, by, start by telling us you know, the story that triggered, you know, your recognition that there needed to be, you know, a better way for patients to experience medical care. Thank you for that question. Um, I found myself at age 30 in a hospital room. It was dark. It was night. I was about to face having hip replacement surgery. And I had had several surgeries prior to this. It was sort of a a cocktail of surgeries that I needed to have. And six months prior to being in this particular hospital room, I had just had back surgery, extensive back surgery, which took six months to recover from. So I was in my hospital room, dark, sort of meditating on these, having these hip replacements, which I was terrified about. There was something about this surgery that really scared me. And I would even have dreams of my legs being off my body and nobody knowing how to put them back on. So very, very scary. So my family had left. I was alone in my room and suddenly this resident, bam, 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 knocked on my door and barged into the room. And he looked at me really strangely. And then he just walked out of the room. And then a few minutes later, he walked back in the room, not knocking this time, just walked into the room, looked at me, and he walked back out of the room. This happened three times. Again, he walked into the room, looked at me, and he said, wow, I never thought the hip replacements in 354 would look like you. So at that moment, I was crashed down into a room number in a diagnosis, and it felt horrible. So what happened is I just retreated from him. I was, I was angry. I was upset. I was an emotional mess anyways, because I knew the surgery was the next day. Sure. And so I decided 
not to talk to him or answer his questions. So he, he didn't get much out of me that night. Mm -hmm. And I decided at that point, I had been through so much, just so much um, with all the surgeries that I had faced. I still had two more surgeries to get through. I had decided that no patient should ever be treated like that ever again. And if there was, I was going to tuck it in the back of my mind, use that information and go forward from that point. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just such a, a powerful experience. And I, I hope not too many people listening in can share it. Um, but I have a funny feeling that many people probably can. And just as a, 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 a tangent to that, one of the things that drew uh, you and me together when we first met in a vision quest community was the fact that we we had had uh, We had both had hip replacements Although <laughs> my, my experience wasn't quite as horrible as as, as yours, but it was still you know, uh, Total hip replacement. Exactly. So if it's okay with you, would you mind? Um, saying a little bit more about what led to the hip replacements just to kind of fill out the you know, the story that got you into the hospital room in that situation to begin with. Because in my experience of your story, um, that bigger picture really informs what I, what I consider in your presence um, a certain fierce wisdom and vulnerability that I wouldn't want to be the doctor or the, you know, the resident who, who had, yeah, I mean this with a great deal of respect and, and love, and I know you know that, but, but as a patient advocate, um, I wouldn't want to be the person uh, who 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 you were advocating against. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, it's a it's an interesting and rare story. Yeah. I I dove deep down into the medical world at the age of three, yeah. and when I talk about my story to other patients, I have this amazing picture, and I found it not that long ago. It was kind of um, hidden in some of my father's things, and my sister recovered it. And it's a picture of my sister, and I, my sister and I, we look very much alike. She's three years older than I am. We're standing by a stool and on the stool are three cupcakes and there's a candle in each cupcake. And she's helping me blow out my candles. It's my third birthday. This was November 2nd, 1965. Okay. And when I first saw that picture, it, the whole impact of the picture didn't hit me right away. But when I looked at it and started meditating on it, I thought, oh my goodness, the very next month I would be diagnosed with bladder cancer. And there's, an, there's, an, there's a local patient advocate in the area by the name of, Chris, of Tiffany Christensen. She's had bilateral lung transplants. And in her book, and this hit me so strong the first time I read this, she said there's a pivotal moment in, everything's, in everyone's life when you're going in one direction and all of a sudden the direction changes and your life will never be the same again. And for me, when I look at that picture, that's what I see. In December of 1965, when my mother noticed blood in the urine, I was a new, you know, I had just turned three years old um, and my life would never be the same. I was diagnosed with bladder cancer and I hit the medical world very, very hard. Um, my father bought, brought me to Boston Children's Hospital. We were told that I had, and I didn't know this till later on when I became a nurse, but I was diagnosed with what's called rhabdomyosarcoma of the bladder. Very, very, very rare type of bladder cancer. Um, the surgeon told my parents that children didn't survive this type of cancer. 
but if we were willing to follow all the recommended treatments, they were willing to give me a 10% chance of survival. So back in 1965, the treatment was pretty grueling. For me, through the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, it was investigational chemotherapy. It was high doses of cobalt radiation, which is a very different type of radiation than we use today. Um, I could correlate it to cobalt radiation is like a bomb going off into your body. Whereas today, it's more of a laser. It's much more fine-tuned. So, and I had my bladder removed. So growing up, I had a pouch, a urostomy. Many people know the term colostomy, but I had a urostomy. I had a little pouch for urine. So today, it's all I ever remember. So I got used to it. But what was very difficult growing up was all the side effects of that cobalt radiation. So throughout my life, I developed colitis. I developed lack of blood flow to my legs because my vessels were not circulating very well. I had terrible burns on my back. Um, it literally hurt to grow. I, my, I remember my father would stick me in a hot bath just because of my bones would hurt so much. So lost many days of school just because I couldn't walk. Just that growing, literally, it literally hurt to grow. So all of that would affect my life. And even later on, by the time I was 29, when I found myself behind that door of room 354, that was all the ramifications from, from all of those surgeries. So later, um, at the, at the, between 29 and 30, that is when I had those two back surgeries. To I developed a bone infection in my back, so we had to take care of that. I had to have skin grafts, bypass surgeries, surgery for a colostomy. So all of that led to 15 years of recovery. For 15 years, I would not enter the traditional workforce again because I was in the healing place. Okay. I just, I, again, I appreciate, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that story, but I appreciate your unfolding it as you have for, you know, in this conversation. Um, I almost want to take just five minutes of silence to let that sink in, but we- um, No, yeah. it's yeah. a lot to retell it. It's yeah. a lot. It's yeah. a lot. You know, and, and growing up, you would think, what was that like for this person who was facing all of those things? But really, I feel like I grew up a pretty normal kid. You know, my mother taught me how to change my clothes so that nobody would see the pouch. Um, I had a fabulous, fabulous hospital that I built in my basement as a kid, and I played hospital nurse was all that I ever wanted to be. And even the kids in the neighborhood would be like, you've got to go see Joanna's, base, you know, Joanna's hospital in the basement. You know, I had little rows of beds lined up and all my stuffed animals had a chart that I would take their temperatures and I would make oxygen tents with saran wrap. And I would go into my father's um, studio in his workshop and I would take tubing and I would connected to soda bottles and put red paper in the bottles to look like blood. I had a very elaborate hospital, but it was really my way of healing, of adapting, of working through the issues of all that I had been through. So it triggered me to want to be a nurse. That is all I remember ever wanting to be. And that is all I remember playing was nurse. So nursing just filled me from the beginning. And, you know, I've had these discussions with my dad about why do you think that is? 
you know, kids are like little sponges. And I was just surrounded by sick children, really sick children. Because at that point in time, you were in wards in a hospital. So there would be six to eight children together, sick together. And, you know, there were children who'd been burned and there were children facing many illnesses. So I think when I look back at my life, I, what I see in my experiences is that either people run away, run far away from a very traumatic, difficult experience, or you run toward it. Okay. And for me, I've always run toward it in a way to understand it. Yeah. yeah. So, so thanks for that. And, and it, that, you're, that running toward it brings me, there are two things um, battling for position in terms of a question here. So I'm going to put them both on the table and sure. just invite you to go in whichever direction feels most logical or most meaningful in this moment. So I know you've spoken about um, the challenges you faced once you became a nurse. You often consider, you, you refer to that as your second cancer yeah. experience. But you've also spoken, we've spoken a little bit about um, what a traumatic event means, um, you know, for, for patients in trauma. So both of those seem relevant, and I think we'll, we'll get to each of them. Um, whichever one of those feels most continuous to you, um, go ahead and run with it, if you would. Yeah. Okay, so what does a traumatic event mean? Um, when you, just this week, it was interesting. I was at a patient support group. Um, with a psychiatrist and he was bringing up this idea of trauma and he said trauma is more about the future than it is about the past and he kind of had us all go into silence about that what you know how does that when you when you say that sentence trauma has more about has to do more about the future than the past what does that feel and some people argued with that a little bit but for me and my experiences with what I see happening with patients, it rings like a pure bell. It truly does. Because in my moment of trauma, my family lost the healthy child, the perfect child that they saw. You know, in a flash, you lose the hopes and dreams that you have for your child. I was too young at that point to experience it in that way. But for my father and my mother, you know, that was huge, that piece of trauma looking, because in a moment of trauma, you head to the future. You know, it happens in the present moment, but you immediately go to the future about what does this mean? What is, how am I going to live my life next? What does my life look like at this point? And for my father, he was a minister. And this was very traumatic and difficult for him because not only did he now have a sick child, but he had a whole congregation that he felt responsible to care for. So how do you take care of a child in this whole congregation at the same time? Very hard. My trauma came, as you mentioned, my second cancer experience, because I don't remember a lot growing up. Now, I remember the happy things, playing hospital, as I, as I discussed. My father wheeling me up and down the long hallways of Boston Children's Hospital and singing to me. Okay. I don't remember a lot of that trauma, of course, that he would have gone through. But later in life, as my friends were now getting married, having children, I felt like I had to withdraw from the world because of all these surgeries. My trauma was, oh my gosh, what's my future? You know, I lost, I knew I would never be able to have children. 
and here are all my friends having children. I didn't know if I would ever be able to walk again. With the hip surgery, they didn't actually know if I would ever walk again. They thought they might have to just fuse the hips because I was in so much pain. So that was how I experienced my second cancer and the trauma in my life. Yeah, I really appreciate um, that perspective of trauma um, being uh, about the future. And then, and one of the things we're working with throughout this whole summit is the importance of narrative or story. And one of the people whom I have a lot of respect for in the, in the Buddhist community, Jack Cornfield, always spoke, he wasn't speaking about trauma, he was speaking about fear, but he, always, he would always say pain occurs in the present yeah. and fear is, is in the future because we're, we're not afraid of the pain, we just feel it, but we're afraid of what the pain means for our story. And you just, you know, that's, it seems like those are, you know, if not the same um, concept, very, very similar in that trauma basically affects our vision of our future. It affects our story. Um, so you, you, you shared with me um, four phases of recovery from trauma. And when I looked at them, my only basis for, because I hadn't seen these before, and my only basis of comparison, and they're not the same, but was, um, you know, I'm going to assume, if we, despite the dangers of assuming, that many people who are listening to us have heard of um, the stages of grief, yes. um, which are, which are pretty much have been out in the world for better part, I guess, over thirty years now. Right, uh, exactly. with, with Dr. Kubler Ross. Exactly. Um, but would you mind walking us because it, there are some distinct differences here, and I found those to be very, very valuable. Would you mind walking us through the the four stages of recovery from trauma? Absolutely. Yeah. These these stages came. This is what I teach. These stages, I mentor um, lay people how to walk people who face ostomy surgery, how to recover from that. But these can have anything to do with any kind of trauma that anybody's ever faced. And of course, um, and they are very similar to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. Um, And what we know about these as I discuss them is that they're fluid. You know, you're not going to walk through these stages and check them off your list and go from there. And so as I discuss them, remember that they are fluid you go back and forth between them. And some of them, and you can ask me more questions about this as we go on, some of them stay with you for a very long period of time. Um, But the first one, of course, is gonna be shock, you know, panic. When I go in and and face somebody who's new to ostomy surgery for the first time, that's exactly what they're feeling. And along with all of this, these are the things that a medical professional needs to understand before they open up that room, you know, before they would have, you know, before they open up the quote 354 room, these are the things that they should be thinking of. So um, shock and panic is definitely the first thing. And again, I, you're going to hear me talk a lot about my dad, but he's the person that is still in my life. That is a pure example of all of this for me, especially you know, it makes sense in trauma, somebody's going to develop good, somebody's going to experience shock and panic. But what is so interesting to me is how that can stay with a person. And it shifts and it changes, but it can be triggered by things throughout their life. So for instance, for my father, um, every time that he has ever come to visit me, my dad is now 84 years old. He still cries when we talk about my story. It is still in there. And that 
trauma button, when it gets pushed, I can still see in his eyes the shock and panic of what that must have been like. I truly do. So to me, that's been very interesting to watch him still get triggered by that shock and panic. Um, the next one, the next phase is going to be retreat or withdrawal. And patients that I experience would be a patient who doesn't want to learn their ostomy care. You know, they refuse to look at it. They don't want to participate in the care. And so I have to involve the community, which is usually the family, to take that until the patient is ready to learn how to take that on themselves. Um, very, very difficult for a patient to, especially who's been through something as, as altering of the body, is having some kind of diversion, whether it be for the bowel or the bladder. Very difficult. And because we don't talk about how we go to the bathroom, you know, that's a very intimate conversation. It's, it's embarrassing. People aren't used to talking about that. And so they just want to run far away. I experienced it myself older um, when I was a new nurse and I was facing, we're going back to those hip replacements, those hip replacements I was, I was facing and all I knew this cocktail of surgery was coming up. I literally ran away. I ran so far away. I ran all the way to Honduras. Um, so I decided, you know, I was going to just put this on the back burner. I didn't want to think about it. I still wanted to do my nursing. And I found out about a nurse who needed some help in Honduras at a clinic way up in the mountains. And you got to remember, I was having a lot of trouble walking. And, but I didn't care. I needed to go far, far, far away. So I found myself way up high in the mountains of Honduras and a mountain peak, you know, and I think that's very symbolic too. Um, but I got what I needed there by running away. And so it's okay for patients to run away because in the running away, you discover something, you restore yourself by running away. And the thing that I loved about Honduras is that they would sing a song way up in those mountain peaks about flying like an eagle and walking again. It was this song about walking and flying and I would hear this all the time and I and it restored me it, reco it, it, it I went into recovery and along with they let me use the mission truck so I was they let me have access to the truck you know they didn't know me you know from anybody that was just this little person that showed up in the mountain one day and um, they soon discovered that I had some needs so these people were very healing for me I went to help them but I myself got fed in so many ways. So that was my running, that was my retreating and going away. So the third phase is you finally come to this place where you have to acknowledge what's happened. Okay, Joanna, you aren't walking very well. The other thing that was affecting my life is I had a leg that was twice the size of normal. It was twice, one leg was twice the size of my other leg um, from a condition called lymphedema. So the cancer had destroyed the lymph nodes in one of my groin area. So the lymphatic fluid wasn't flowing. So I couldn't bend my leg anymore. I couldn't squat down. So along with the hips, I couldn't bend my leg from the lymphedema. So I had to say, Joanna, you have to look at all of this. Between the swelling in your leg, the pain in the hips, the burns on the back, it was time to get started. So I had to acknowledge it. That's what patients finally do with ostomy surgery. They're like, I can't rely on my wife or my loved one. 
or a young person who wants to move forward in life again, I gotta learn how to take care of this myself. I've got to acknowledge it. Until you finally get to the adaptation phase, which is the fourth phase, adaptation or reconstruction of your life. You learn how to live, but more than that, not only do you learn to live and adapt, but you learn literally, like in my mountain peak of Honduras, you learn how to fly with it. And not only are you learning to live, but you learn to live well to the best that you can. Yeah, I, I love I lo I, just that last part is just I can I can just feel I can feel that I have a, a little goosebumps coming up based on that. So rather than just you know learning to live, but learning to live well to even to thrive. So that's just beautiful. So. So there's there's a, a variety of questions I want to ask now, but I think you know I'm, I'm I'm trying to stay focused on you know what we're talking about here, what patients wish their caregivers knew, which is you know the subtitle of the conversation, um, and I'm I'm looking at you as as I'm trying to continue to see you as a bridge um, because that's what we're you're doing here. So I think it would be great if you could really get um, you know really directly into some of the, and I know you, there's some research on this. Uh, there was a question that was, was asked, what do you wish, and I'm going to read this, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, what do you wish you could tell your medical professionals about your hospital experience? And that was a, a survey done among patients. And the, the, the themes that were uncovered, I think, are just incredibly powerful, probably won't come as a surprise for anyone who has spent any extended time in a hospital. But I'd, I'd love for you to take, you know, within the context of your own story, um, both as a patient and a, as a nurse and as a, a patient advocate, which is, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I don't know if you've ever used that title with me, but I just figured I'd plug it in because that's how I see it. Um, Thanks, Red. Yeah. So could, could you un unfold some of these themes and, you know, what you've discovered both in your personal experience and through this research? Um, the, the, the themes that you know, patients really wish their caregivers um, knew. Sure. Yeah. I was, I'm very involved on a patient online support group. Mm. And what I have found about support groups and doing that online versus inpatient, you know, versus support groups where people are there in person. Yeah. I think both serve a purpose and have different, have different ways of evoking emotions from people. But what I have found online is that people really share very deeply and extensively where they might not always do that in person. So, you know, I counsel people on some of these online support groups. Um, so what I found one day, I just decided to pose this question. And this is not, you know, deep scientific, you know, evidence-based research. This just comes from a, just a typical question that I wanted to ask. And so really it was, what do you wish? And this is, this is people who had come out of an acute care center, a hospital experience. Okay. And it was, what, what do you wish your, your caretakers had known about you? And so what I was really amazed, what came from that, 60 people really had in-depth conversations with me. And they represented 24 states, people from 24 different states, I got responses from England, Canada, and Australia. So I was just delighted with, with these responses. But the common themes were, were many. One was people were very, well, first I, I wanna backtrack a little bit because people for the most part, if I were to create a pie, 
90% had good hospital experiences. So being a nurse in an acute care center right now, I was really pleased with that. But everybody had at least one incident that caused them to either withdraw, shut down, question the hospital experience and what was going on. So, so everybody. So I thought that was really interesting too. So the themes were, the first big one was don't sugarcoat things. People felt like the doctor didn't want to really tell them what was going on, that they were somehow sugarcoating it. And that they felt that once they left the acute, the acute care center, that things began to happen that they didn't anticipate. And they were really angry about it. You know, and I would hear people would say things like, if my doctor had only told me this, maybe I wouldn't have done this, or why wasn't I told about this? But when I look at the whole picture, and that's why I like being the bridge, because I like bringing better understanding between medical professionals and patients. What happens a lot in the hospital situation is that patients are in that very first stage of recovery, the shock, the panic. And so they're numb. And so what they always don't understand is that they can't hear everything that a doctor or a medical professional is saying. I know I have this happen to myself. I'll go in and I'll meet the patient and they'll be in this place of shock and panic and they're numb. And sometimes you can't always tell because they're looking at you and they're nodding and they're agreeing. But then the next day they will remember nothing about what you told them. So this is some of the things that are happening. And these are some of the things that I share with doctors is you have, this is why these phases of recovery are so important to try to understand where they are. Because you can't go into a patient's room if you don't try to understand where they are. Because you're wasting their, you're, you know, you're wasting your time. You know, if you're go, trying to go in depth into this is what cancer you have, this is what we're going to do, this is the kind of medication. Patients can't hear all of that at once. A lot of this has to happen outpatient. And so that's why it's important to bring better understanding. Absolutely. So my father would even say, I felt lied to. I felt that I wasn't told about all the things that were going to happen to you. When the doctor, I, he said, I agreed to this radiation that you had to have. And I might not have agreed to that if I had known all these things were going to happen to you. Yeah. There was no way of knowing. And no matter what I say to my dad, he's going to still ex experience the trauma button that we yeah. talked about. Yeah. So there was absolutely no way of predicting all of the things that I was going to face through the span of my life. Right. And so, but we can bring that into consciousness and learn how to talk to patients, learn how to recognize where they are in receiving the information try not to sugarcoat, learn how to tell patients the difficult things that we have to tell them. Yeah. You know, whatever it takes, however it takes on how to learn how to do that. You know, there's talking to the chaplain at the hospital. How do I tell the patient that, you know, they're facing a rigorous road ahead? There's ways to learn um, how to do these things. The next thing, and this is really big for me, Reggie, because I've seen some really sad things happen with this. Many patients felt the burdens of the floor. And what I mean by that, the burdens of the floor, an acute care center is a really difficult place. Nurses are very, very busy. They're, they're, it's noisy. 
They have a lot of tasks that they have to accomplish. Nurses work 12 hour shifts for the most part, and so they're exhausted. And so often what happens is a nurse will go into a room trying to get all the tasks that she has to accomplish, and the patient will feel that. You know, often I've heard nurses say things like, okay, I've got eight more patients to see, so you're gonna have to wait for me to come back. Um, I'll get your medicine, but you have to wait. You know, I will come back, but I haven't eaten lunch. You know, all these things that bombard the patient and they're like, oh my gosh. And so what happens, and this happens with physicians too. Physicians, you know, and being a physician is a very difficult thing. You know, just backtracking, they have to know so much about life and death, how to coordinate medications they're making serious, serious, difficult decisions. And so on the physician side, I've seen some very sad things too. Um, I had an experience where I was on the floor and the patient came in with a different diagnosis than what I recognized what was going on with the patient. The patient came in with difficulty breathing. I immediately recognized that she had breast cancer. And this is something that she had kept hidden from her family it was coming out of her skin, so I saw it. And when I called the physician, he's like, well, that's, he was very hurried and he was had so much to accomplish. And he said, Joanna, that's not what she came in for. And I said, I know, but you need to come see this. And so in his burdens, in his rush of trying to accomplish probably the 15 patients that he needed to assess and make decisions for in that day, he came into the room, looked at her and said, looks like you have cancer and it's probably other places as well. I'm gonna go look at your chart. Wow. And that hurts me. You know, all of a sudden I'm back in room 354 going, whoa, wait a minute. That's what that resident experienced with me. He yeah. probably had 15 patients to see too, and that pushes my button of trauma and everything. And I think the physician could read my face and was like, whoa. So what happens is often nurses are left with the ramifications of a busy physician. Often I'm left with the ramifications of busy nurses, you know, and trying to calm this whole busy scene down. So what happens is patients try to be good. They try not to burden the nurses. And what happens is ends in pain and suffering because they may not want to ask for pain medication. They may withdraw and then the pain increases. They may not want to ask for food or water because they know everybody's busy, so they don't get their needs met. The other thing that happens is that patients feel bad about being advocates for themselves, which unfortunately we don't find enough personal patient advocates that are willing to stand up for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so they're treated as burdens like, oh my gosh, that patient is really you know, needy. They're seen as needy instead of, wow, look at what you're trying to do from yourself. You're asking lots of questions. You're asking to see your doctor. They're cast away as the needy patients and the ones that burden the nurses. And the patient feels that. They're like, oh, that nurse doesn't like me. You know, I'm just asking too much, asking too many questions. So we have to feel, we have to find the balance with that. Absolutely. We have to check in with ourselves and, and quiet ourselves. But We'll talk more about that in just a few in just a few minutes. No, if I if I could, I just wanted to just reflect something that you said, reflect on something that you said because I think it's really important. Um, so we're faced with in, in these uh, settings with 
um, the, the worlds of medicine and science, not to, not to put them in opposition, but science and medicine are there, and then there's this, this traumatized patient, or at the, at the very least, this ill or injured patient. Right. And the patient has this trauma or this in injury or this illness, or all three, and the, the doctors and the nurses, the, the healthcare providers, have all of this busyness and expertise and pressure on them. And the theme that I heard, and I want, if I misheard this, correct it, but it sounded as though the one thing that we're really talking about here, if I could, if I could say there's one thing, and I think there are more than one, right. is, is that ability to you know, take a breath and be with that other person. So the, you know, the, the patient's ability to um, you know, be with him or herself and advocate for him or herself, but then the nurses and doctors' abilities, rather than just seeing, for your, your example is um, extraordinarily you know, sad and enraging, yeah. uh, but you know, rather than three, hip replacement in 354, Mm -hmm. um, this human being named Joanna Burgess, right, who right. I'm checking in with, and, and and it's that moment of humanity um, being recognized amid all of the science and medication and treatment, right. um, which are all part of the deal. So it's not like there's this hero and villain story. Right. There are all of these humans in a story, right. and we have to recognize that. So that's yeah. what I'm, I'm hearing that framework there. I like the way you said that. You know, when a doctor looks at a patient, usually the first thing he's looking at is that famous history and physical. You know, the lab results, the <laughs> diagnostic studies, the history, the, the physical part of that history and physical is huge. Yeah. What's much smaller is the social history, the psychological history. Those are a few sentences. Yeah. And I had this revelation. I gave a talk last weekend in Virginia, and the theme was called um, Paint Your Future. And so I took that theme and started talking about, you know, you're not just painting your future, you're painting your life. And your life is this masterpiece and, you know, full of color and full of layers and full of so many intricate things. And wouldn't it be amazing if outside everyone's room was their picture, their masterpiece, you know, of their life. If you could just, you know, put the essence of someone through a computer and out came a picture and you could post it outside the room so that you would have this gallery down the hallway of not just room numbers and not just patient diagnoses, but you would have this beautiful picture of their life. I think that would be an incredible thing. And it would just capture so much more. And so you wouldn't just go barging into these rooms. You would, you would pause. You would pause and you would look at that picture and you'd go, wow, wow, look at that life. And you would be much more prepared to walk into the room, to not only look at the body, but you'd be prepared to enter the mind, the soul, the emotions of a person. Yeah, no, thanks for that. So you, you delivered that, you said, at, at a talk in Virginia last week? Yes. So I'll say, I'll say so, so folks, you heard that here second, <laughs> the second time, but that, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that started happening, Joanna. So oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'd love it. I would Thank love you. it. Yeah, for those folks, I said, you know, walk around and tell your stories because 
you can never estimate what you have to say to someone else. Your story means so much. So yeah. they pretended they were walking pictures and walk a walking art gallery as they faced each other. So, yeah. That's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> so, so I did, I, I, I may have interrupted you when I kind of just reflected um, as you were going through um, the themes uh, that the patients have. Did you get all the way through them or? Um, I would say some of the other ones were not feeling listened to. Right, okay. Not feeling seen. Um, and that kind of goes along with attitude. Yeah. You know, this was a real revelation to me, the, this thing about not being seen, not being listened to, and attitude. What, when I went back as a nurse, I, I ordered my medical records from Boston Children's Hospital. Okay. And I was astounded by what I was reading. And it was highlighted to me. It said, unfortunate three-year-old, unfortunate six-year-old, you know, because I was followed in Boston through age of 18 okay. to 21. And all through those growing up years, I was seen as unfortunate. Yeah. And so now when I read those histories and physicals and I see that word unfortunate, I am just devastated for that patient because a nurse, a doctor will form an attitude about the patient um, that they have had this thing that happened in their life and poor, unfortunate person. When actually what my parents were very good about is I had to have heroes in my life growing up. And so they presented me with people that had been through pretty significant life altering events things that would have they that other people would have said those unfortunate people one was um johnny erickson who was a quadriplegic who learned how to paint with her mouth she helped she held a paintbrush in her mouth mm -hmm. she was one of them and i just loved her and i thought she was just amazing mm -hmm. another one was a poet by the name of jane merchant who had a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta which is generically known as brittle bone disease and she basically spent her life in a bed looking out a window and she would write the most amazing poems and her poems would make you think that she was a world traveler okay. you know so they taught me that even in the pain of growing up even when my bones hurt so much that i could still experience the world so those heroes those people were really important to me so when i see a doctor or a nurse forming an attitude of a patient and it doesn't matter to me whether they're comatose or not you know that patient has had that masterpiece of a life the intricacy you know body mind spirit they're a whole person really and we should not accept that they are unfortunate yeah. i don't i don't want to accept that word for that patient so I'll really, I often encourage, especially in the intensive care units where patients are intubated and they can't speak for themselves and the nurses know them a lot as just machines and they're monitoring machines and tubings and all of that. I'll really encourage family to bring in a lot of pictures of that patient so that the nurses can see, wow, you know, there they are climbing a mountain or with their families. It's really important to see the humanity in that patient. Yeah. Yeah, so, so thank you for that. I, I don't think I had heard the unfortunate word story before from, from your early days. And now I will admit, I'll go public with this, that since I've known you, 
Um, unfortunate isn't one of the words I would have ever used to choose yeah. to describe. Well, I was, Reggie, I was shocked too when I read yeah. those words because yeah. I never saw myself as unfortunate. Yeah. And to see that in black and white print, it was another shocking moment for me. Yeah. It truly was. Yeah. It truly was. So, so thanks. So I'd, I'd like to begin to bring this, I don't, I don't want to say full circle because I don't even know what that means. It's kind of a cliche. <laughs> But, but you know, as we weave our way through what the patients wish the caregivers knew, I know that you speak about creating your zen of care. And um, that seems like a next move for us to make in this conversation. Um, I know you returned to an acute care center after some 15 years. And what you, you speak about how you created your own zen of care. Right. So could you speak a little bit about that? And, and I know it, it, it entails becoming a holistic nurse and the art. And I love that you use both of these words, the art and science of nursing. Well, part of my recovery in those 15 years was entering into more of a holistic approach of care. Um, I needed something gentle and kind because I had had all these experiences, painful with all these surgeries. And so it actually was a gift that originated from my father when I was a little girl, as when he was studying his um, doctorate as a ministry, he got very much into holistic healing. He studied visualization, meditation. He took me, I don't know if you know of the woman by the name of Oval World, who was an, she was an intuitive healer. Um, she would receive people in a church in Baltimore once a week. He drove me to Baltimore. She did, um, I remember her, running her hand up and down my spine. They were very afraid that I would develop scoliosis. And I just remember the heat of her hands. Okay. So, so um, entering into holistic care was initially a gift from my father. So I went on to study healing touch therapy, massage therapy. I became a sit down massage therapist because I couldn't walk um, when I was studying massage therapy. I took that even further to really intricately studied lymphedema therapy which is a type of massage for people who've developed this swelling. So for 15 years, I collected all these holistic tools. And when you look at holistic nursing, you come to an understanding that you're in a reciprocal relationship with a patient, okay. that not only are you giving to the patient in a way that's helping the patient to heal and grow, but you are receiving from the patient in a way that's healing and growing to yourself. So those concepts are what I entered finally into when I returned to the acute care center, which was shocking to me. For, 50, you know, for the past 15 years, I had been in a dimly lit room with a patient doing massage or healing touch. I focused on getting to know their story and them as a complete human being. And so I will never forget when I entered the first day when I was on the floor, um, I had accepted this job because I really wanted to be, I had decided I wanted to be a wound and ostomy nurse. Yeah. I wanted to give back in that way. And the first day I heard a nurse call a patient by their room number, you know, so that's where we're coming full circle, Reg. So yeah. I, you know, for that first week of working there, I was really, I probably stepped outside myself because I was in so much shock. And in fact, I got sick and I ended up in the hospital because I was, how am I going to deal with this? The, and everything that patients were telling me from that, from that online survey, 
I was in shock at the busyness, the noise, calling people by their room number. And I understand why, because we have to have privacy guidelines. You can't be in a hallway calling the patient by their name. Somebody else might hear that so-and-so was in the hospital. But this was all very disturbing to me. And I would go home every night and cry. I was, you know, first of all, I was new at my job. Did I pick the right thing? Did I do the right thing? How am I dealing with all this, this stuff that goes on in the acute care center? So while I was in that, was that while I was in the hospital, I had developed a, a, a um, exacerbation of my colitis. And so I was just having to recover from that. And so while I was in that hospital room, I kind of honed in, got into my, what I call my spirit centered place, okay. which I like to see a little altar inside my body with a candle on it. Then I can climb into that room where I have that candle lit and sort of get quiet and try to decide what I needed. And so I decided that I would go back when I recovered from the colitis, that I would go back and create a compassionate way of treating these patients, even if it was just little things, even if I could only do little things at a time. So that grew into my Zen of nursing. And I was able to include a nursing assistant that came into my life. And what we did is together, we created a compassionate way of caring for patients to do all that we decided that we would do in the moment, all that we could for a patient. And so when we enter a patient's room, we look, we listen, we see, we get quiet, we hone in on what's going on with that patient. And sometimes it's just about putting lotion on somebody's legs. All those little things mean so much to a patient. And so it's about creating presence. Mm -hmm. We create a presence about how we wanna be. We wanna breathe because sometimes I'm having a busy day or I've had a difficult night or she's had a difficult day, but we wrap all that up, we put it in a suitcase, we leave it outside the room. And we enter the room in full presence of what's going on with that patient. So present involves touch and seeing because so much can happen with touching a patient. You communicate so much, you are either gonna make a connection or you're gonna disconnect from a patient. Just the little touch can communicate so much and the patient will feel that whether, they're gonna feel whether you wanna connect with them or you wanna disconnect with them. And the gifts of being truly present with somebody are just amazing. I had a woman this week that I went into her room. She was all dressed, she had her lipstick on, she had her necklace on. I had to see her wound one more time before she left the hospital. And she had this really thick Russian accent. And I said, you are such a strong and beautiful woman. And just by slowly saying that and looking in her eyes, she, what came from that was such a gift to me. She gets, she said, I was a whole Holocaust survivor. Mm. That would have never happened if I hadn't slowed down. And so I, I pulled up a chair and it only took one minute, Reggie, just one minute. It didn't take much time. And she told me a story about her grandparents um, being killed by the Nazis, their house being burned down, and just the memories of her grandparents baking cupcakes for her and all these things. She cried. And the next thing I knew, we were singing Fiddler on the Roof songs. Oh. <laughs> 
you know, the gift, the miracle in that whole thing would not have happened if we hadn't slowed down, pulled up the chair, became very present. And the reciprocity, what came back to me was, wow, the gift of someone, someone sharing so deeply in what really was probably two minutes at length that happened. And I could take that story home and gain so much from that. So that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, so so it's just beautiful and just just so touching. And it comes back to that that recognizing this humanity again, you know, beyond the schedule and the, um, you know, in this case, the the impending discharge of a a patient. And just remembering this is a, you know, there are two human beings interacting. And I, I, later, as you know, you always see things when you look back on life, but the idea of holistic nursing was innate in me, I believe, for a very long time when I was a new nurse on the pediatric floor. I worked with children who were going through cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, this, another, I, I see this as a miracle. One of my very first patients was a little boy who showed up on the floor who was three years old, mm-hmm. who was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma of the bladder. And you know, I was encouraged by friends to, by my friends to tell the parents my story. And so the reciprocity that happened was, as I'm telling my story, the family's listening. They're healing because they're seeing somebody who went through it. You know, they thought when their little three-year-old boy was facing ostomy surgery, he would never be the same again. So they first knew me as their nurse. And then they were like, wow, oh my gosh, my nurse went through this herself. That's amazing. And so it changed the whole dynamics of how they were able to see that hospital experience for me. And for me, it was like I was watching a movie of my life and what it must have been like for my parents. So as in holistic nursing, you see as you're giving to your patient, they're giving right back to you if you only open up your heart and your mind to look at that. And so that helps the busyness on the floor. You know, yes, you're gonna be busy and you might not have time for lunch, but you have to open yourself up. What gift is that patient gonna bring back to me to sustain myself, to feed myself, so that I can continue to be the nurse that I wanna be? Because when when I told you those stories about, you know, I'm too busy for you, I've gotta go to lunch. You know, you've got cancer and you've got it other places too. I know that they didn't want to say those things. But in the moment when they're feeling so overwhelmed by all that they have to do, it spills out. And so you have, practitioners have to feed themselves again. And on a busy day, you have to find small ways to do that. So, you know, this this, um, aid that works with me, we do have very busy days and difficult days. And sometimes it's just like, let's bring some light into the room. Let's open the window. Let's open the shade so some light can come in. Let's get a warm cover for that patient. Sometimes that's all we're able to do, but the little things mean everything. Yeah. And those are what patients remember. Yeah, yeah so, so that's just, it's just, it's just beautiful. And it, it, it comes with presence and it comes with... Um, just the awareness that pre- that a certain qu- I'll say quality of presence is possible, and you know, nobody's being criticized here. But in fact, for many of us, well, I think for all of us, at some point in our lives, we need someone to invite us into that awareness 
that that kind of presence is possible. Um, it, and I, I think that can come with intention. I think sometimes it comes through trauma. I think if we're lucky, it can come through grace, but you don't want to be waiting around. You know, maybe right. grace will happen. Right. So, you know, the, the, there are just some, some, those threads of presence of uh, several times. And this just, you know, talking about the relationship between a, a patient and a caregiver or even a caretaker, because both of those are true, I think, at different times, um, that in any kind of relationship, there's a healthy reciprocity. Um, and that's not quid pro quo. If if you, you know, I'll do this for you. If but it's a healthy reciprocity, which you've really spoken to, um, you know, just so eloquently. And what I what what makes me, um, what just intrigues me and impresses me, and in moments strikes me with awe most about your stories is the juxtaposition of your um, your experiences on both sides. I mean, if I were a teacher, I'd say both sides of the desk. I guess right. both sides of the bed. I don't even sure how to say it, um, but it's it's just really powerful. So I have one more question because I'm aware of, of our time frame, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, exactly, it actually is, it's a, just a pointing to a, a, a several phrases that you offered around the Zen of care, um, and the first one is finding joy in sorrow. And I was going to say the second one again. There was, there are several of these. Uh, but the finding joy and sorrow is the first one, and finding grace in scars is the second one. So, I mean, they're not completely <laughs> mysterious, but I'd love for you to speak briefly to each of those, if you would. Yeah. Um, well, finding joy in sorrow. My middle name, by the way, is Joy. Yeah, I, I do and, know um, that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. And I asked my dad once, you know, did you name me, did you give me the middle name of Joy because you were so happy to have me? And he said, no. He said, well, yes, but you were born with a smile on your face. Yeah. He said, you had a joy for life in the beginning and it has sustained you throughout everything that you've been through. And I finally came to understand that more fully when I came to know a woman by the name of Trevi Johnson, yeah. who's an author. And she has a phrase that she uses called radical joy. And I think it's an amazing, wonderful grouping of words. Yeah. Because what radical joy is, it's a joy that isn't about happy, happy, that we think of the word joy. But it's a joy that comes from an unexpected place. It comes from an unpredictable place. Yeah. And for many people, and I've, I've heard this often from cancer patients, when a cancer patient says to me, I wouldn't take back my cancer because it made me the person I wanted to be. Wow. To me, that is radical joy. Yeah. It's a joy that comes from an unexpected place, a place unimaginable that you would never know, know that it would come from. Yeah. And so often actually you'll hear cancer patients say that it made me the person I wanted to be. So to me, joy, radical joy can come bursting through a place that was once full of sorrow. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and uh, I'm familiar with, you know, I you know that I know Trevi as well. And, and I was, I was, uh, you know, I'm intrigued because the first time, and I think she still uses the entire phrase, but you know, her, her entire phrase was radical when she first it, you know, iterated it was radical joy 
for hard times. Hard times, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so it was a really, really focused and, and targeted phrase. Um, speaking about kind of a cultural, societal, global perspective, but yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. I can, because um, what it reminded me of, I just want to add this, is a great line from, from Macbeth, uh, and where uh, and this this these first three words have been used in various places for centuries, um, but it uh, it actually reads: "Give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break." So it's it's you know part of what we're speaking about here is that in fact, if you're willing to engage the sorrow, engage the hard time. In fact, as you know, I you know I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but as you have done and continue to do, um, you, f you do find that radical joy for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And then finding grace in your scars. I have so many stories about that. You know, someday when I write my memoirs, I'll, maybe I'll call it grace in your scars. But most of the people that I work with have undergone life physically altering illnesses where there is a dramatic change in how the body is going to look you know from one from there you are at one moment your bodily your body is totally reconstructed in a different way and as i mentioned earlier there's embarrassment young or old young people face how am i ever going to find love you know who's ever going to love this body again online support groups that comes up over and over and over again. And it's the same for elderly people as well. You know, how am I ever going to be able to love myself when I look at that scar? What is going to happen? And one of my favorite stories really is about a man who came to me in my outpatient clinic. And he wasn't even an older ostomate than I was. He was older than I was, had an ostomy even longer than I had, because I'm at 50 years now an ostomate, which is a person who has an ostomy. And I was like, wow, you've had an ostomy longer than I have. And he came to me because he just couldn't get his pouching system to work. And he was still using a pouching system from 1962, I believe it was. And back in the 60s, they would, they would um, put patients in this huge, it looks like, it would look like a big rubber bag. It's, it was made out of neoprene, huge black rubber bag. And so he needed help figuring out this was not working for him anymore. What was he going to do? And I discovered through conversations with him in, in those 45 minutes that I spent with him, his wife had never seen him change his pouch. And I was just really amazed by that. So he said, you, he said, are you going to have to look at me to fix this? And I said, the only way I can fix this is to see what you're wearing so that we can introduce something new if I don't think I can get this to work. And so when I saw this big black bag for the first time, I was shocked. I was, I'd never, Reggie had seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you want to enter the 21st century of pouching systems? Thank you for showing me this. This is amazing. And he was like, I really want you to get this one to work. And so it was a real struggle to get him to go into something new. But what happened from him telling the story of his wife never having seen him change this pouch to transitioning into something new. He went on from that moment, and he this was a white collar worker, you know, very professional man. He had never told his story. He started going to the patient support group 
He became an Austin mentor and he went on to have his, his story written up in a magazine. Mm -hmm. So that to me is finding grace in your scars, okay. you know, moving through that. Um, just amazing. And I can say the same thing for myself. You know, when I got married um, at my wedding in attendance was that three-year-old little boy who was now a grown-up man and a doctor. Yeah. He, he had followed a similar path to me. Yeah. He had gone on to become a doctor to work in the same place where I was treated as a child. So talking about coming full circle, mm -hmm. on my wedding day, I have a picture of my husband on one side and this man, a boy, a man, you know, I see, I saw him as everything. I saw the three-year-old little boy and there's his mom and his dad and there he is as a man, as a doctor. Coming full circle, <clears throat> finding grace in your scars, huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that, jo Joanne. It's just it's just beautiful. And I, I would I think we you and I could probably continue this conversation for another hour or so, but I know we could. Yeah. I know we could. But but we're not going to do that. Because so, I'm tearing up a little bit. I do have my hanky. Yeah, that, that's good. And, and hankies are both allowed and appreciated and that's probably right. even encouraged. Um so I wanted to say thank you again for for spending this time, you know, with me and you know, on behalf of you know, the future of health coaching summit. Just just thank you so much for sharing your story, your experience, your expertise, you know, with us. Um, thank you, Reggie. It was my delight and pleasure. Yeah. So with that, um, again, this is, uh, my name is Reggie Mara. And on behalf of the future of health coaching summit sponsored by Teleosis Institute, um, this is actually our, our final um, conversation of the summit. This is our closing keynote. And I've been speaking, as you know, with Joanna Burgess. And um, I just want to say the name of her talk again, No Bridge Too Far, What Patients Wish Their Caregivers Knew. And I would just like to put a punctuation mark there and say that a caregiver can be a physician, a nurse, patient advocate, a family member, health and wellness coach, but anyone who's engaging in a way to, to give care. Um, so, so thank you for um, listening to this wonderful conversation with Joanna, and thank you for visiting us at the summit. Um, take care, everybody, and good night. <laughs>